Welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm Programme Director for Brexit at the Institute. And I'm very delighted that we've finally managed to entice Nick Bowles, MP, to come and join us on the stage. We realised that we were pursuing the wrong strategy when we kept on inviting Nick to breakfast events. Um, then we finally spoke to his office and said Nick would be delighted to come as long as we uh, allowed it to be slightly later in the day. So welcome to lunchtime with Nick Bowles. Um, Nick Bowles, for all of you who know him, is, uh, is uh, the independent progressive conservative, is those are all the right, uh, right names, uh, MP in a party of one. Uh, for Grantham and Stamford. He was, until earlier this year, the Conservative MP for the same constituency until he dramatically uh, walked across the floor or whatever uh, to guys or to sounds of colleagues yelling, don't go, Nick, um, as he uh, uh, was frustrated at the inability of Parliament to find a compromise on Brexit. But Nick is very long-standing friend of the Institute for Government shortly after the Institute was founded, as some of you will have been at IFG's IFG 10 events a couple of weeks ago. Nick was our first political fellow, and I think uh, our most distinguished political fellow uh, around. Thinks were there other political fellows. But Nick, <laughs> Nick gave us huge help in providing some early insight into the Cameron regime when David Cameron became Prime Minister and Coalition Government back in 2010. So, Maybe we just start there, Nick. So back in 2010, David Cameron elected, new MP, had told his party that the secret to their success was to stop banging on about Europe. Um, maybe you'd just like to explain to the rest of us how we've gone from there to a situation in 2019 when, frankly, almost no other issue can get any bandwidth apart from Europe. What has happened to British politics and to what extent does David Cameron and the Conservative Party have to take responsibility for where we are now? Well, uh, thank you, Jill, and, and it's great to be back and thank you for catering to the fact that I'm a grumpy <laughs> sod before 10am, uh, so I always think that I should avoid all engagements because I'll only end up being rude to somebody. Um, uh, lunchtime, hopefully, I'll be a, 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 a little more genial. Um, I don't want to sort of go over what is very well discussed ground about you know how it came about that we held a referendum and seeing off UKIP and all of that sort of stuff and I'll try and perhaps dig into the the sort of deep cultural uh, roots of this um, uh, and I think that there are two things going on one of which perhaps to some extent absolves David Cameron and the Conservative Party but the other of which squarely puts them back in the dock um, the, the theory that I have that uh, to some extent absolves them is that I think that the European question, the question of what relationship we have with the people and the countries to our east, is the defining issue for British and indeed English statecraft for at least a thousand years. And that for all of those thousand years, we've been trying out different approaches. We tried marriage. We tried invasion and conquest. We tried balance of power, playing one off against the other politics. Um, and one of the things that we can discover if you take a step back is that no model works for much longer than about 40 years. Um, all of those models worked for about 
40 years and sometimes a, a, maybe a few more and sometimes a few less, but none of them last for very long. And that the EU, membership of the EU, was just our latest attempt uh, to find a new kind of relationship with the people and the, the land to our east. And we've always been beset by that same sort of yin and yang of, on the one hand, not wanting them to go off and do whatever they wanted and, and have to live with the consequences, but on the other hand, not to get too involved. Um, and the breakdown of our European Union membership uh, uh, as a long-term project, um, I believe, was on some long-term historical perspective inevitable, because once the European Union had stopped focusing mainly on market integration, which we brilliantly, Margaret Thatcher brilliantly, and Lord Cofield brilliantly managed to distract them with for fully two decades. Uh, but once they had got back to what they always were going to do, and this is where there was a dishonesty in the, in the debate in the first uh, referendum, it was always a political project for, for them. There was never any doubt about that, and it was simply the British elite decided to lie to the British people and say, no, no, it's just a common market. Um, so once they got on with the political project, that is when I think probably it, was, it, was, uh, it had an expiry date and it was a question of, of when. So to that extent, I think you can say this is a broad sweep of history and the Tory party was just writing it. Um, but then now to be a little bit more critical. The Conservative Party, put obviously, by its very nature, is more concerned with... Uh, sovereignty and nation, perhaps, or self-consciously concerned about them uh, than other um, uh, parties in, in, uh, the, in Parliament and in our political system, and, and prides itself on being the defender of both of those things. Um, but also, bluntly, it is now a party of old, rich people. Now, I use both the word old and the word rich loosely, but most people who are members of the Conservative Party no longer have a mortgage, own their own home, no longer have a mortgage. Most of them have a full pension pot. Most of them have literally no connection other than through their pension investments with the world of work or the world of commerce. And they are driving the politics of our governing party. And it's not to criticise them, because I think it's completely legitimate for people in their older years to have political views and express them, uh, and for those political views to be different and have a different perspective on life than that of younger generations. It's no criticism of the, of the individual's concern for expressing their views, but what is my criticism is that the Conservative Party leadership and the Conservative MPs in Parliament should not see it as their role as to represent only the views of Conservative Party's members in the governance of our country. Uh, it should be their role to, at the very minimum, represent the views of Conservative and potential Conservative voters, and that's just the minimum. And frankly, it would be quite nice if they'd give half a thought to other voters too, people who are never going to vote for them. And what has happened is, and I don't think this is unique to the Conservative Party, though it is causing unique pain and grief to all of us because the Conservative Party is in government, but what has happened is that the system of political parties 
with membership, with narrow membership, with real power, is causing a fundamental break between political leaders and the people and the country. Uh, and personally, I think that until we get away from that, until we move beyond uh, party membership controlled political parties, uh, we will find that we'll be in one version or another because, you know, let's say we eventually um, uh, no longer have a Conservative government and we have some version of a Labour government. Well, by God, are we going to experience the same thing all over again, just in a different direction? Another small cabal of totally unrepresentative people who have very little in common with the broad mass of the people will be requiring it through endless composite motions in the mm. Labour Party conference, mm. uh, the country to head in, in a direction it doesn't want to go. That's very interesting. So, so actually what we're seeing that playing out now is with the Conservative leadership contest that we see is basically people tuning their political preferences to the base of the Conservative Party, that very narrow of selectorate rather than, rather than anything else. I'm quite interested, you were talking about the sort of party system being sort of broken. You, of course, tried in Parliament what triggered your walkout, to broker some sort of cross-party compromise. And people looking at the UK <coughs> from Europe, where you know, people are used to forming coalitions, say one of the reasons we found it so difficult to solve this is because of our sort of way Parliament's set up, things like that. Do you want you like to share with us sort of your reflections on Parliament, the way you know, parties in Parliament interact based on your attempts to actually try to find a way out of the Brexit impasse? I have to say, I think that is the most appallingly lame excuse. Okay. I mean, we managed, and this was in mm. the times when I was, was, was proud to be a mm. Conservative, mm. you know, we managed to put together mm. a coalition with a full-blown coalition agreement that survived five years in the space of a weekend. Yeah. And the whole senior civil service, I happen to know, said it couldn't be done. And it was going to be impossible. Yeah. It was going to take weeks and weeks and yeah. weeks, and they, we, yeah. we couldn't keep the, Her Majesty waiting that long, and mm. you know, etc., etc. And the fact is, these two parties that have been knocking mm. seven bells mm. out of each other only days before sat down mm. in an, in a room, went through their respective manifestos, and knocked up a coalition agreement of quite some detail. I mean, maybe not as the detail that you sometimes mm. see in yeah. coalition agreements on mm. the continent, but a lot of detailed policy, including entirely new policies like, you know, on a, on a change in the voting system and a referendum on mm. that. Um, so the truth is that with leadership, mm. of course we can do mm. cross-party working. This idea that just because we mm. sit opposite each other and, and shout at each other means that we can't do cross-party working is, mm. is frankly pathetic. Um, uh, the point is we didn't have leadership. Mm. If Theresa May had either in 2016, which would have been mm. the best time mm. to do it, or in 2017, which still would have been, you know, a, mm. enough time, mm. if she had said, right, okay, we're going to have to do this on a cross-party basis, let's sit down and work out what you mm. really care about, what we really care about, uh, we would now be members mm. of the EEA and uh, EFTA in some mm. form, uh, we'd be in the single market, we'd be out of the common agricultural mm. policy, mm. and Nigel Farage would be sitting in Florida drinking too much with Aaron Banks. Um, you know, it, it would be very bliss to be alive. And that would have happened mm. if the Conservative Party had had a, 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 a decent leader, which mm. it never had, 
uh, under Theresa May. And if she had had the courage to recognise that on something as dramatic as this, that just as you know, Winston Churchill and Clement Attlee realised you couldn't take a country to world war on its own for a brief period uh, without a cross-party coalition, similarly, you can't break its 50-year relationship with Europe. Uh, without a cross-party coalition. If she'd done that, and okay, it would have been tricky with Jeremy Corbyn, mm. you know, the mm. things would not have been straightforward, mm. but there are enough Labour MPs who would have mm. risen to the challenge. Mm. In the early weeks after David Cameron resigned, mm. after the referendum, mm. Oliver Letwin was still in mm. the Cabinet mm. Office. And, he, and David said to him, listen, you, because we thought that mm. the leadership contest was going to mm. last the, mm. the, the, for a longer period, um, uh, David said, why don't you get things sort of started and mm. st started getting people thinking about this? And the, one of the first things he did was invite Yvette Cooper mm. and a couple of mm. others in to start talking about how might a, a cross-party process work and would it be a special mm. cabinet committee mm. or would it be a grand commission or what might it be? If we had started off on that route, we'd mm. be out by now yeah. and we would not be having this nightmare. It's not because we sit opposite each other in an ancient chamber. But not a single one. I mean, David Cameron could have actually done what he said he would do uh, before the referendum and stay, overseen that. Not a single person, as far as I can remember, put themselves up in that Conservative leadership contest. George Osborne didn't think he could win, didn't stand, etc. Actually presented themselves as the sort of person who might have trying to offer that sort of perspective, sort of mm. uniting perspectives as opposed to what I think one of Theresa May's directors, director of strategy described as a process of privatising and wholly owning Brexit <coughs> you know, for the Conservative Party to become no, the party of the 52%. No, no, this, this, so is the, this is the fault, the active fault, of individuals. Mm. David Cameron for mm. cutting and running, for being a, you know, throwing his toys out of the pram. It's the active fault of Theresa May, who was, of all people, well-placed to actually try and bridge both sides, because she hadn't voted for Brexit, but she clearly did believe that it needed to be uh, delivered, who actually, for all that she's not a personable person, had perfectly good relationships with people like Yvette Cooper and, and others who she could have worked with. It's individuals have brought us to this point. Uh, and they will be held accountable by history, if not by, you know, something more, more draconian. So one of the things we've seen in the Conservative Party is that there's very clear sort of division of opinion. People are moving to, as you said, to where they think the sort of centre of gravity of the membership is. But there are some people who you look and think, how on earth can they still be in the Conservative Party. Some people have said they won't, uh, may not stay, depending on, uh, depending on who becomes leader. I mean, does the Conservative Party itself have or indeed deserve a future? Can it actually reunite uh, around things or is Brexit sort of existential threat to the Conservative Party? I mean, I, I think people have, uh, no, put it this way, nobody's ever won any money on predicting the demise of the Conservative Party. I mean, people have written books <laughs> about it and it always comes back. Um, so in that sense, I think that, you know, it represents a body of, of not just of opinion, mm. but of sort of deep culture, tradition, attitude, uh, that, you know, in an ancient and free country, mm. there's quite a lot that's worth <laughs> hanging on to. 
and let's not throw the, Barbie out, the baby out of the bathwater. That is, that is the normal Conservative yeah. position. You, cue hollow laughter as we mm. throw not just the baby out of the bathwater, but the entire family um, uh, uh, through Brexit. So I, d I, I don't think it will necessarily disappear, but I think it is overdue a very long time uh, in the wilderness while it works out what on earth it actually believes in and, and whether a broader, more balanced set of priorities rather than an ideological obsession might not serve mm -hmm. them uh, better. Um, the, normally, one could view that with equanimity. You know, normally, in our political system, when one of the parties <coughs> has gone bonkers, the other party has, is just beginning to sober up. Uh, and, and so, therefore, even if you don't vote for the, 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 the party that's currently sensible, you at least, I mean, I remember on May the, what was it, May the 1st, 1997, yeah. um, that incredibly beautiful day. Uh, uh, you know, I, I had voted Conservative, and I was as overjoyed as everybody um, by the change that had taken place and by the hope and the, uh, 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 that it offered. And, and that used to be how we lived. Now we have this awful position where we have a party of government which is entirely unfit and incapable of governing uh, uh, responsibly for the whole nation. Uh, and we have a party of opposition um, which is quite possibly worse. So, moving on from that, we potentially face a position in the autumn where <coughs> Parliament, I think Hilary Benn was on Newsnight last night after John Burko didn't select the amendments today, for, I think he's not selected them today as well, from Dominic Grieve and Margaret Beckett trying to attach mm. the No Deal rider to the estimates. Hilary Benn saying Parliament will face a big crunch in the autumn if it really wants to stop No Deal. And we've seen huge amounts of normalisation of No Deal from both candidates and posturing on how readily they are to embrace it. Um, but Matthew Paris wrote at the weekend, I think, that the Remainers were sort of giving up the ghost and just deciding that actually, and we saw people saying, you know, well, <coughs> Corbyn's even worse than no deal and we can't risk Corbyn if we're Conservatives and things like that. So do you think Parliament's really got the stomach, particularly your colleagues, really got the stomach to stop no deal? And if so, how is it going to do it? Um, well, it is obviously the the thing over which uh, I and many others are vexing uh, more than anything else. Um, uh, the first thing to say is the last attempt, which is for those of you who don't follow it closely, was, was the opposition day uh, motion to grab a day of the order paper and then pass, pass a bill like we did before. Um, that was always, I felt, not that I didn't support it, I did support it, but it was always, I felt, unlikely to succeed for two quite fundamental reasons. Firstly, it was a motion of the leader of the opposition. And asking Conservative MPs to vote for a Jeremy Corbyn motion is, is, is a tougher ask than asking them to vote for a motion that I've put forward or Oliver Lewin or, or uh, Hilary Benn or Yvette Cooper. Secondly, the timing of it was unfortunate. And I tried hard to argue for the opposition day to come three weeks later once the Conservative Party leadership election had got down to the final two, by which point, say, the supporters of Rory Stewart might have thought, well, to hell with it, this is clearly not going uh, anywhere uh, that I want to go, uh, so I'm willing to, 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 to take a stand. The problem is it came right at the start of the leadership contest, so you had a lot of people who might be sympathetic to the cause 
who didn't want to undermine the candidate they were supporting by publicly supporting uh, Jeremy Corbyn. So I think it, it, it was doomed to fail, and it failed by 11. Um, uh, uh, that, in a sense, suggests that it should be possible to win at a more opportune time. The problem, though, is, uh, I think, threefold. Firstly, importantly, you say that there has been a normalisation of the idea of no-deal Brexit, and that, A, it's, that's clearly true, not just within the Conservative Party, not just within the right-leaning media, uh, but more broadly, uh, and, uh, and presumably it will continue uh, uh, through the summer. Um, secondly, you have the, the, the people who we refer to, and I don't know if they refer to themselves as respect the result, the respect the result group of Labour MPs, those mainly uh, uh, representing constituencies that voted leave overall, um, they're much crosser with the uh, leader of the opposition's office than they were. So previously they'd gone along with stuff because they thought that uh, that Jeremy Corbyn was going to hold out against a second referendum, which they don't want at all. Um, and now they feel that the response to the European elections has been uh, to, to indicate that the Labour Party is basically going to end up backing a referendum in all circumstances. So they are much less likely to go along with a Labour whip than they were back in March when we did this the first time. And you saw that, that there was, you know, I think there were half a dozen people who voted against the, their own lead of the opposition's motion and then quite a number more who abstained. And though it's not quite clear which of the abstentions were paired and which were not, nevertheless it was a biggish number. Um, and then, of course, the third element is, in the autumn, how many Tories will be willing to defy the whip, defy the new Prime Minister, vote not for a lead of the opposition's motion, because if, if we find something it won't, it won't be that again. Uh, uh, how many of them will there be? And I think that it's going to be very, very mm. unpredictable. I think, that, I think we have a chance of getting more, mm. but only, and this is why I personally didn't feel that the approach on the mm. estimates was the right one, is there will be a sense among Conservative MPs that you've got to give the new Prime Minister a chance, mm. but you mustn't run out of time. And so what does that mean? I think it probably means you've got to give them August mm -hmm. to talk to whoever's not on their sun lounger <laughs> um, and, and get, allow them to come back at the beginning yeah. of September and say what's going mm -hmm. on. Where, of course, what will become very, very difficult is mm -hmm. if they come back and say, talk's all going swimmingly, haven't yet mm -hmm. quite got a conclusion, uh, I'll be back yeah. to you in October, mm. because then we're beginning to run out mm. of time. So that is where I think it's either the early September mm. or it's early October is the moment. But, you know, we have to find a route. And mm. uh, unless, Jill, you have cut one up at the Institute for Government, um, uh, it's not entirely clear what that route is. I think we're thinking that, uh, that the speaker is the person that you need. That you either have a vote of no confidence... Yeah, no, that's not uh, a route. Which that's is, an alternative. It's not a route. Uh, which isn't a route, which is the last resort, you might say. Uh, or you have to look to the speaker to be suitably creative mm. and let you do things that... And so the, 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 the only insight I would give you is that the way it has to work is this. You have to go to the clerks and say, we want to do this, can mm. we? 
And then they are absolutely the total Rolls Royce, uh, absolutely fantastic. But what they cannot do is say, why don't you do this? And nor can mm. the speaker. Mm. You know, he can nod and wink as much as he likes, but you know, we actually have to work it out. Mm. And it's not, it is not, I promise you, it is not obvious, because we had a route and the route was very specific. Mm. Mm. And it all related to the Section 13 yeah. of the Act and all of that. That's all gone. Mm. It's all mm. gone. So we need a brand new route. So don't, don't assume that John Burko uh, has got something prepared sitting mm. in his safe, waiting to unveil it at the key moment. We have to build something, take it to his people <coughs> and him ultimately, mm. uh, and have them say, yes, we think we can make this work. No, well, we thought MPs were getting a bit too complacent about how easy it would be to start yeah, no deal right in the autumn because they forgot that it was the fact the Prime Minister wanted her deal through that gave them all those no, I think opportunities. Right. So I think we may not have the numbers and we may not even have a route in the current, my current assessment. And if it came down to no confidence vote in the end? So I don't know the answer. Um, I'm, I'm very clear that, you know, if, if, the, if, if the current Prime Minister, uh, the new Prime Minister was proposing to take mm. us out without a deal, then I would vote no confidence in him. Mm. Um, uh, but I'm no longer a conservative and you know, that in the sense of the logic of, of my mm. journey. Um, it's an enormous step for a conservative MP. I mean, it means you, you know, your chances of fighting the seat again mm. in the next mm. election, which will mm. presumably quite likely mm. to follow very swiftly, mm. is, is very slim. Uh, I mean, very slim, zero. Uh, so, you know, it's got to be... Now, maybe if you're Dominic Grieve and you, mm. you've already, you know, slightly fallen out with your association and you're, you've had a distinguished mm. career and you're... Uh, mm. But what's amazing is don't underestimate how many MPs <coughs> desperately want to remain MPs at any that, price. Yeah. I mean, I find that... It, Bizarre, but they um, do. I mean, I think that was part of Matthew Paris's argument if you're sort of no, I think you know, right. 50 yeah. with a mortgage and yeah. this is the job and you can't yeah. look around and don't see an immediate job for an ex-MP, yeah. then, uh, then... And, you know, everybody was sort of broadly speaking assuming that we were trundling towards a 2022 mm. election mm. and so you begin to make your mm. life plans on that basis. You know, I'm very much aware now mm. that I may mm. well be out of a job mm. in November. It's quite a... Mm. Okay, I'm going to go to audience questions. We'll come back again to ask things. So let's take things in, sort of, let's do some little crops of whatever. We've got a couple of mics roving around. So do wait. Maddie, will you come down here? Yeah. yeah. Hi, Nick. who oh. you are. Sorry, yeah. you. Yeah. No, yes, you. Okay, yeah. Uh, hi, Nick. Uh, Adam Payne from Business Insider. I'm just uh, wondering, given there's a number of MPs in the Conservatives and Labour who are increasingly disillusioned with the state of their parties, their Brexit policy and their leaders or leaders-to-be, do you expect more MPs to follow your lead and quit their parties and sit as independents in the near future? So we mm. have got a, quite a lot of independents, actually, in this party. Yeah. It's one of the really quite interesting phenomena then today. Oh, sorry. Should we get a second yeah. one? And then no, I'll we'll do get a second one, yeah. No. Um, David Hanney, House yeah. Lords. Uh, I wonder if you could just comment on the issue of the legislation that is stuck in the Commons at the moment, immigration, trade, mm. agriculture, fisheries, uh, uh, to some of which, at least, does seem to be <clears throat> necessary to have on the statute book on the day after a no-deal exit. 
mm. without which the statute book will not be able to function properly. Uh, mm. Could you comment on that and comment on how that might provide a route mm. of some kind? Mm. Okay. Um, thank you. Well, two very good questions. Do those two? Should we so do I'll those, those two? They're both involved. We'll yeah. come back. Um, so on the first, um, uh, who knows? It's a very personal process uh, making a decision to leave your party. Uh, and each journey is, is as it were, unique. Um, I would be amazed if there were more over time. But where from? When? <laughs> whether they do it together? Whether it becomes part of a thing rather than just an individual journey, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't hazard a guess at this point. Um, it's very interesting, this question of the legislation. And, and I hear quite, I'm not a legislative expert, I hear different views about the extent to which the, they are absolutely prerequisite for Brexit being implemented, uh, or whether they're just sort of inconvenient mm. not to have them mm. and my sense is that they're inconvenient not mm. to have them mm. and that probably a new prime minister would say you know we'll leave on the 31st mm. of October and then we'll sort it all out we'll have a mm. few days of emergency legislation to sort out mm. the statute book and we'll back back any judicial views in the meantime I think that is my, the, my sense that I've got mm. and unless anybody has specific you know, provisions that they know cannot uh, uh, operate unless those and, and, and unless those that legislation has been passed. My sense is that they, the new government, will not bring forward anything that could be amended to attach a bill to do what we want to do until after Brexit. Okay, don't. Do you agree or? I'd be interested to know. Do you, <laughs> have you identified anything no, that looks... No, I mean, there's been a lot to and mm. growing about trade deal. Yeah. Uh, the government's tended mm. to say that there's, they've got the two statute instruments enough to be going yeah. on with. Enough to be going on with. Yeah. Uh, but there are others who don't believe that. Yeah. And I don't think that is a provable uh, proposition. It's yeah. a matter of judgment, I think as right. all these things are. But I would be inclined to think that your guess as to where a new Prime Minister would go in these circumstances, given that at least one of the candidates is fairly reckless, uh, I would agree with you. Mm, at least one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so just on um, Adam's question, Nick, um, what lessons are MPs taking out of the attempt to change UK to form a form a new party, I don't know whether you ever flirted with them as a possibility or thought they were too committed to a second referendum, whatever, but it's quite interesting <coughs> what's happened there and the sort of, you know, splits and things like yeah. that. I mean, I think that the object lessons of the of TIG change and the Brexit party mm. are absolutely fascinating and the depressing truth is, is that there are more positive lessons to learn from the Brexit party than there are from TIG change. Um, I'm particularly attracted to the idea of having a party with no members, um, <laughs> I have to say, after my own experience. Um, uh, but uh, no, I think there's a serious point. Um, I think that it, quite a lot of it was mm. anticipatable. Mm. I mean, I'll, I don't want to break any confidences mm. and nor do I want to be mm. disobliging about mm. people who I genuinely 
admire mm. enormously mm. for the courage of what mm. they did, the principle of what they mm. did, uh, uh, the fact that they were trying to make a difference and, and, and create something new. I just I salute them totally. Um, but as it to happens, I was having a conversation with somebody who's thought about this mm. whole question a lot, as have I, and we booked it um, on the day, as mm. totally by chance, mm. that they went, that they announced. Um, and I said that I had three criteria for why I thought a new force mm. might fail. Uh, and one of them was if it happened before mm. the first stage of Brexit mm. was over. Uh, not the long-term mm. relationship, mm. but the sort of, you know, the withdrawal mm. agreement. And secondly, if it defined itself as about a referendum and mm. nothing else, more than, mm. you know. Um, and thirdly, if it hadn't worked out in advance of launching, who its leader was, what it stood mm. for, what its mm. brand was, you know, what its pitch was. You can't, you know, mm. this is, you can't make this up mm. as you go along. And of course mm. it's going to evolve, mm. but you've got to have an opening pitch mm. that is absolutely buttoned down mm. and all of the conversation has happened yeah. before, for months, hopefully. Mm. And of course they didn't do that because they sort of were, they bounced themselves, they were bounced by particular events mm. and certain individuals. And, mm. uh, and so they, the heartbreaking thing is that I think that they could have succeeded, mm. uh, but I think that they, they made it very, very difficult for themselves. Okay, six more questions. Uh, so we've got Stephanie, let's do Stephanie and then along the road. We'll uh, do, I'll do two at a time, yes. Okay. Uh, I'm Stephanie, I'm the London correspondent for German Welt. Um, in the autumn, the pressure will also be on the E27, what to do, an enormous pressure to avoid no deal. Now, imagine Boris Johnson comes to Brussels and says, um, give me a tiny little bit on the backstop, and I can, I guarantee you a, a majority in the House of Commons. And the price that you use, 27, I don't think it's going to happen, but they would throw Ireland under the bus, terrible internal signal to all the other small member states, but whatever, no deal is not, it's worth the price. But how much could they rely on then really getting that deal over the line? Okay. So, yes. Uh, hi, Katie Heafy, Department for Business. Um, I'm a former constituent of yours from hey, lovely Stanford. Um, and just taking it back to you, you mentioned that you think you might be out of a job come November. Um, on a local level, how, what the response has been to your, mm. your move and things? Because I have my views on what the kind of locals are like there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering if that was borne out or not in the reception yeah. you've had. Uh, interesting. Um, okay, well, a very nice uh, combination of questions. Um, the first question, so my view is very clearly this, which is that Boris is going to be a prisoner just as much, if not more so, than Theresa May was. And the idea that Ian Duncan Smith and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Steve Baker and Marc Francois and Marcus Fish and, you know, and, 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 are going to be happy with a little something on the backstop. I mean, it's ridiculous. He, 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 he and let's be clear, if he could get it and that was enough, he'd go for it in a heartbeat. I mean, he has no commitment to anything he says or believes. Um, so, of course, if he thought that that was a way to get the deal done and stay Prime Minister, he'd do it. 
but he won't be able to do it. He's going to be a prisoner. And I just don't see, you know, in the Venn diagram, mm. I don't see any overlap between the circle of things that a majority of MPs, including overwhelmingly the, the, the majority of Conservative MPs, will vote for, and things that the EU could possibly concede without totally undermining its credibility and its internal cohesion. So, uh, personally, I think it's very, very unlikely. Frankly, I don't think there's any more likely for Jeremy Hunt. They might, they might want to be nicer to Jeremy Hunt if he were to become uh, Prime Minister, but I don't think it's going to be enough, whatever it is, uh, to, to, um, uh, to bring them over the line. I think the only thing that could, re as it were, revive the withdrawal agreement in some form is if no-deal Brexit is closed off. If a no-deal Brexit is absolutely closed <laughs> off so that it is against the law for a Prime Minister to take us out on the 31st of October with a no-deal Brexit, which is obviously what our hope and our intention is, if then that might change the dynamic because suddenly then the only way of delivering Brexit is the withdrawal agreement. But while it remains true that there is this other perfect no-compromise Brexit out there as a possibility, uh, their ability to, to, to find a compromise that, that, that gets the ERG back on site. And remember, the ERG, having felt a bit uh, on the back foot in March, when we managed to pass our bill and require the extension and everything else, you know, if Boris becomes Prime Minister, they're going to be cock-a-hoop. They're going to think, right, now finally we, 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 we control the castle. They're not going to be in the mood for a, you know, for a, for, for a compromise. So, Nick, what about all these sort of one nation? But you can talk about Stanford. I just want to come back to you about these one nation or sort of one nation-ish. Not quite sure how meaningful that is. Tories who seem to be backing Boris. You say he's very much prisoner of the ERG, but there are some people who are not ERG signed up for whatever. He's created this coalition of, you know, maybe Matt Hancock. Damien Green or News like whatever, who say they're backing... I mean, are they going along with this too? Or, yeah, he's you know? a prisoner of the ERG, and they're a prisoner of their own ambition. OK. Right, let's Stanford. all go back to my Stanford. constituency. Um, so I've had this weird experience in my constituency. So my constituency is a very, a very small-c conservative place. Um, I used to joke with American friends, who were always rather amazed... <laughs> Uh, when I told them that I said that I, re that I represented the equivalent of Orange County um, uh, in England, uh, which they found amazing, given that I was an openly gay uh, and quite, you know, reasonably small L liberal uh, kind of fellow. Um, uh, so it's small C conservative, uh, uh, and and it was, you know, it's not like Boston, but it is was nevertheless quite heavily um, in favour of Brexit. I think it was sort of 60, 40. Um, and, obviously, and I have a majority of 20,000. My vote was 52%, I think, mm. of, the, of the vote. So, you know, it, 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 it's pretty much going to vote Conservative, whatever. Um, so I'm under no illusion that, even if I wanted to, stand as a, an independent uh, there, that I would have any chance of winning. I won't have any mm. chance of winning. But what's been very interesting is that since my, what Chris Bryant calls my flanks, <laughs> Um, uh, across the floor of the house um, uh, since since April the first, um, as it fortuitously was, um, uh, the number of people who come up to me 
when I'm in town, you know, one of the towns uh, doing surgeries on a Friday, is far higher than it ever was when before. Um, and pretty much every time I'm there, half a dozen people will come up to me and say, how are you, how's it going, really admire what you did, or thank you for doing this. And then, of course, unfortunately, the conversation always ends with the immortal phrase, Fred, I don't vote Conservative. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm very, very popular among a rather small minority of uh, vocal, perhaps slightly more urban. I mean, Stanford in particular, but even in Grantham, I think you'll probably find the Remain vote is probably in the towns and the villages where, you know, it, it, I don't hold surgeries and, and therefore I'm less present or less visible. Uh, I suspect are a bit less pleased with me. <laughs> okay, more questions. We've got uh, nobody, there seems to be nobody in the back who wants to come. Uh, so David, go to that lady, but let's come down here, Maddie. We'll do there first. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm Derek Bates. I'm a, a writer. Um, the Institute for Government, um, probably a decade ago, uh, did a report which says that um, ministers should be trained. <laughs> did you not know that? No, I do. <laughs> I remember it. Um, it's never more apparent uh, when Theresa May stands up in front of uh, television and says, Junker, Junker, Junker is going to find that I am a bloody difficult woman. Now, if there's a way to start a negotiation badly, that is it. I mean, I certainly was a big supporter of the IFG campaign for ministerial training, and, and indeed, uh, as a baby junior minister, participated in it. I'm actually a fan of something which we tried to do, um, uh, Chris Murrin and I tried to do, and got seen off by David Cameron. It was that we wanted to do psychometric testing of all of the shadow ministers. Uh, just to, just, you know, nothing, you know, they all thought it was like the most appalling thing. Of course, any professional job now, one of the first things you do in, in, in an interview process is, is take one of the fairly standard tests to sort of try and establish what kind of personality you are. And it seemed to us a fairly logical thing. You're trying to build teams in departments to establish uh, 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 what is the sort of base material that you're working with. Um, but politics is just, it's so old fashioned mm. and it doesn't believe that it has anything to learn from any mm. other walk of life. Mm. It's utterly maddening, mm. but anyway. We even did 360 degree appraisals of some ministers. So anyway, yeah, we'll go there and then, yes. Hi, uh, Amelia Peterson, I'm a PhD student at Harvard. Um, you started with a kind of historical analysis of why Brexit was maybe mm. inevitable. If we ever got to the point where the ERG chokehold was broken in some way, would there be ever be traction again for a sort of economic analysis of what we maybe should or shouldn't do? Or do you think there's just no, that's just kind of fallen by the wayside as a way of thinking about what our relationship with Europe should be? Um, I mean, I think there's a much bigger question, which is how, how long is the populist cultural wave, nationalist populist cultural wave, going to run? And I, in the, in the long run, I'm actually optimistic that, you know, ultimately it'll be found out, because it always is, uh, and also ultimately 
liberal democracy will learn from its mistakes and, and, and find new tunes to sing because it's pretty good at learning. Um, but I think that the wave has got quite a lot of mileage left. I mean, certainly another five years or two, five years perhaps. Um, in that time, I think that you know, people uh, won't, won't, they'll just be going la, 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 la. Um, the fear I have, if I'm being pessimistic, and I am quite pessimistic in the short term, uh, is that we're now at a point where I'm beginning to think that actually we need to experience no deal Brexit before all of the things that we've all been saying about, you know, sheep farmers' tariffs and yeah, everything, that people actually need to experience it and then hopefully may start thinking, well, maybe we should have listened to some of those people who said, and maybe we shouldn't, you know, discount what the CBI says and the TUC says and the bank, governor of the Bank of England and all of that. You know, maybe it's only by actually, you know, eating the pudding that people will, will realise uh, what's uh, involved. Funnily enough, I do think that if, we, if people did, it would be, you know, unbelievably painful, damaging and I suspect cataclysmic for the Conservative Party, though I couldn't care less about that. Um, but I think that, funnily enough, we'd probably work our way back to EEA after membership and within a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, assuming the EU would be willing to negotiate something around that. Um, I think the, 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 there'd be quite quickly a view of, oh my Christ, what have we done? Mm. We need to get back to some of the building blocks without rejoining the EU. Um, <coughs> but it just seems to me so mad to put yourself through that when there's a perfectly reasonable destination that you can get to first. Uh, we'll, but I fear we may have lost our chance. And will we do that as the UK or will we do that as England well, having I know. lost... I know. Uh, I know, I know, I think those are some of the many uh, experiences that, you know, people will say, yeah, 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 you keep on saying the union's going to split up. Well, you know, when you've lost one of them and the other one's looking <laughs> a bit dicey, um, uh, then maybe people will start listening. Okay, Matt. Yeah. Nick, uh, I found your analysis of the two main parties and their relationships, their memberships, absolutely compelling. Um, it does seem to me, if you look back in history with both main parties, when they headed to the extremes, there was always resistance and a movement pulling them back into the centre, and I don't really observe that with either party at the moment. I also think, you know, on, on top of that, um, that we're in a position where you, you described waking up on May the 2nd, 97. I think quite a lot of people who are Labour voters woke up and felt the same way after the coalition was elected. And I find a huge number of people I know now describing themselves as politically homeless. Yeah. Is there any realistic prospect for a new electorally successful party? Mm. Wish I knew the answer. Mm. Um, this is probably not the kind of film that people who come to talks at the Institute mm. for Government on a lunchtime go to see. But I'm rather a fan of Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and Guardians of the Galaxy 2... I think there is, I'm trying to find the name of it, I've asked, this is the sort of research I get my researcher to do, um, is, is that there's a particular uh, run that he has to make through an asteroid system and all of that sort of stuff to get to somewhere in an impossibly short amount of time. And it involves sort of just judging everything completely perfectly. Uh, and I can't what it's called, but I'm longing to find the name. I think that that very, very narrow 
tiny probability everything's got to go right, all of the stars have got to be aligned, is just possible this autumn. But not much longer. Because I think that it is conceivable that a, I mean, this autumn, maybe next spring, but not in 2022. I think it's inconceivable that, firstly, I think it's mm. more likely than not that we will leave with a no-deal Brexit mm. on the 31st of October. That will then immediately mm. define the mood of the country. Mm. It won't be about the last two mm. years. It will be about the mm. current reality. Um, I think it's myself mm. unlikely that the Labour Party will, will organise themselves to shuffle Jeremy Corbyn on before then. They might in 2020 or 2021 and mm. hand over to somebody else from the left, but I think in the mm. next six months that's unlikely to happen. So I think it's just conceivable that you might have an election in which you've got mm. Boris Johnson, who's just led the country into mm. no-deal Brexit, fighting uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, and Nigel Farage, mm. and you can imagine just possibly enough people feeling politically mm. homeless that they all group on a piece of territory. Now then the question is, is that piece of territory the Lib Dems and Joe Swinson? Uh, or is it that plus something else? Uh, and I have no idea. I have no idea. But I think it's a very, very narrow chance. I suspect that if it doesn't happen then, mm then things will probably go back to some kind of normality in that eventually the Labour Party will elect somebody who isn't Jeremy Corbyn and yes it will be somebody more left than we're used to but you know if it's Angela Rayner I think a lot of people who are totally fed up with the Tory party and hate Brexit will think yeah I can live with an Angela Rayner premiership and so I think you'd then have the Tories out, you know, probably Brexit party in mm. with 20 seats, you know, and Angela Rayner. But that's in a few years' time. In this next mm. period of time, I think there might be that opportunity. But it's not, it's not easy to do, but your as Tig explained. But your sequencing is definitely that, yes, that we might get a general election after a no-deal Brexit, because of course the Prime Minister, still as a minority Prime Minister, can't get anything done. Yeah. Uh, if you do that, do that, get some of David's bills through these bits of legislation that are waiting for Parliament to mm. be prorogued and come back again, whatever. Rather than, you know, if you're faced with the prospect of stepping in Parliament blocking no deal, the Prime Minister then goes for a no deal versus clearly remain both general election clearly or both referendum. Clearly both are possible. I don't believe, I genuinely think that for once... Um, uh, Boris is actually saying something he believes when he says um, that we cannot have an election before Brexit. Because okay. I think he, I think he knows that Nigel Farage will just make total mincemeat of him. And no um, second referendum. Not going to say, well, Parliament's blocking me. I'm putting it back to the people. Tell them again. It's not impossible, <laughs> but I doubt it. Okay, let's do. I'm going to take three questions. Sort of final round, she says. Yes. Thanks. Uh, Chris Carr from the Department for Business. You talked earlier about the coalition agreement and the ability of people to sit down and talk to each other from opposite sides. And I wondered whether you thought there was an argument to be made for an electoral system that requires that to happen slightly more often, as mm. it does in the European countries you were referring mm. to. Mm. 
Mm. Okay, and then Peter and then him. Yeah. Do all three at once. Peter Wilson Smith from Meritus. You talked about the importance of the Conservative Party acting in the interests of mm. not just the, the rich elderly members, but a broader um, constituency. I mean, in a sense, Brexit is a sort of classic example of that policy in action. I mean, I can't think of any issue in my lifetime where there's been such a stark generational divide. You know, a clear majority above 50 for leave, a clear majority below for remain among the, the new voters, seven to one against. And my question is, I mean, do you slightly worry perhaps that, you know, by still trying to sort of push through some kind of sensible Brexit, you're you're complicit in an extreme example of intergenerational unfairness. And now that the polls have shown a distinct change towards a majority for Remain, you know, what would get you to say a second referendum is a sensible policy now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. Uh, in 2016, uh, you discussed about immigration. And last year, uh, I covered a uh, conservative party conference, and uh, you discussed about free trade and pro-business and Adam Smith. Mm -hmm. But now you discuss about 1,000-year statecraft legacy, and why discussion is changing. Oh, that's, okay. that's some interesting uh, questions there. So firstly, uh, electoral reform. Um, so I've always been against it. Uh, I had no problem, in a sense, in the coalition, because I thought that of all of the options, alternative vote was the least, had the least to, to, to recommend it. But if, my view was, if you're going to if you're going to have a proportional system, then have a damn proportional system. Don't have one that can be even more uh, weird uh, than the one we've got. Uh, and I am, I do genuinely believe that the constituency link is a, is a powerful strength, and not just a powerful strength; it's actually just a defining feature of our politics. And you'd give it up. So, um, <coughs> I, in a sense, my minimum bar would be. I would require a proportional system that, that retained the constituency link as, you know, to, to, to mm -hmm. as much as possible. But I think it is clearly the case that if we move to a position mm -hmm. where we have, as the polls mm -hmm. currently suggest, four parties on 20% each, uh, then it's uh, it, it no longer even vaguely justifiable. Um, but the truth is, it's always been, what is, has always been the case is still the case, which is you've got to win under the old system in order to change the system. And there's nothing that's ever going to change that. Uh, so, so, but I think having said that, I think a minority Labour government with SNP and you know, Lib Dem implied support is likely to, to bring in some kind of a proportional system. And, and I think that that won't be necessarily a bad thing. The point of, you know, what, am I complicit by, by backing a form of Brexit um, rather than a second referendum? Um, it's a reasonable, it's a re very reasonable question and, and a reasonable charge. I mean, I don't, I, I don't feel guilty about it because I do believe that old people's votes count as much as young people's votes. And it was one person, one vote uh, uh, in that referendum. And the, uh, the majority was clear. On the other hand, I, I have been clear and remain in this position, which is that Theresa May's deal was the hardest Brexit that I am willing to countenance. Now, I preferred a softer one, which is the EAFTA, uh, but hers was the hardest. And if that is definitively off the table, 
then I could move to saying, well, then, okay, we... Because I'm not in the business of revoking. I don't think you can revoke without asking the people again. So that would lead me to backing to a referendum. While there was any chance of a softer Brexit happening, I personally felt that was the best way of responding to the referendum uh, and indeed to this fundamental historical position that we find ourselves in without, uh, without actually doing ourselves real harm. But if, if, if that disappears, then, then I, I think I might well find that, I, that that's the only position left to me. On this point about, you know, the, the, as it were, the changing conversation. Now, obviously, sir, I'm no longer a conservative, um, so I've got that delicious freedom of being an observer. Um, but the truth is it's a, it's a bigger shift. You know, for the moment, how long for, don't know. Economics is not what we're talking about and not why we're voting. And it's not the analysis that persuades us on things. It's culture. And I think that, you know, Mr. Abe in Japan knows that. <laughs> um, God knows and has, you know, yes, economics matters. Yes, Abenomics matters. But actually, a lot of his appeal has been an appeal to some cultural roots and traditions and identity. Uh, and that is true in Turkey and Hungary and Brazil in the Philippines. In, I mean, you know, it's, it's true all over the world. Uh, and I think it's a fairly historically explainable reaction to a very, very deep economic crash um, uh, that, that people start reaching for other certainties that perhaps they feel have been overlooked. Uh, and the Tory party has sort of got caught up mm -hmm. with that, uh, with all of this stuff about sovereignty and parliament and, uh, 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 and, and the endless talk about the Second World War and <laughs> Dunkirk and you know, D-Day. And I mean, I, nobody reveres that generation more than me, but the relevance of it to what we're currently going through is literally zero. So final question for me, Nick. Uh, <coughs> political system looking a bit shaky and ropey. We've already discussed electoral reform. We've had these big tussles between the executive and parliament. Is there a sort of bold parting manifesto for rebooting the political system, changing membership party or whatever. Should we just all join, like Nick Clegg said, we should have all joined the Tory party. Maybe yeah, if that yeah, happened, yeah. it'd be a different leadership election now. But what, uh, how do we revitalise the you know, political parliamentary system? We need to do well, that. I mean, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be coy about it. I would like there to be a new force in British politics uh, <laughs> that was not a membership-controlled uh, organization that was porous that was yes it stood as a party because you have to stand as a party to stand candidates in elections um, but that was a movement that that allowed people to be belong to more than one movement uh, that had as I recommended in in a little book I wrote in 2010 you know had a coupon arrangement uh, at the next general election with the Liberal Democrats whereby Liberal Democrat candidates were the candidates of this movement and and Liberal Democrats backed the other candidates of this movement in the seats where they weren't uh, originally Liberal Democrats. That is, that is my sort of sublime mm, yeah. ideal. Uh, um, uh, but, you know, wishing these things is one thing. Making them happen is quite a lot harder. OK, well, that seems a point to end. So, Nick, it's been great to have you. While you're you. still an MP. Just. Uh, <laughs> hopefully not too, not just, well, that's a prediction about elections and stuff like that and whatever. Stands in independence somewhere. Be fun be the first person in your new movement. Um, could you all join me in thanking Nick for joining us at lunchtime? Thank you.